Hi, hi everybody. Oh, well, welcome. Welcome to Marvel Talks. I'm so happy to have you. You know, I call my good friend Dave Crane the marvelous David Crane because his initials are DC and I know there's always a rivalry between Marvel and DC, but I am I feel marvelous <laughs> being here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Our viewers are slowly slowly gathering before the stage in the various platforms. We have Corey let me say to our viewers that uh, Corey is a 20-year restaurant industry veteran turned entrepreneur and one of LinkedIn's most popular and influential voices. Corey is the founder and chief visionary officer of Shedwoo, a smart shifting scheduling platform with enterprise communication, rules-based scheduling, compliance, and many other features, and is taking the world by, by storm. Corey, you're back online. I am, and, and I don't have all the uh, beautiful background noise, so we're good to go. I want to tell your audience something that they may or may not know. I need to give you a huge shout out because you are one of three people that's the reason that I'm active on LinkedIn. I was brand new to the platform trying to figure out why I was there, what I wanted to do, how I could get a little bit of attention, and you started a campaign, Seven Stories, Seven Lessons. I hopped on right away. <laughs> that campaign took the world by storm. Carrie Luxem was doing videos on LinkedIn. Uh, I, as you mentioned, 20-year restaurant industry veterans, of course, have the restaurant operator's HR playbook. I have about 20 of them over here as well. I'm giving away to anybody watching this broadcast in the restaurant industry. But And then a, a friend of mine, Anna Sabino in Hawaii, she was a, one of the first people to do videos. I believe she did your challenge as well. Never forget, the three of you changed my life. So a huge thank you to you. I'm very honored to have this comments from you, Corey. It was a, yeah, 2018 was a, was a crazy year. I switched careers. Uh, I began delving into the <laughs> nitty gritty of, of LinkedIn. So this, this campaign was one of the most bizarre things that I did. I just, I began to post videos on, and, and some personal stories of mine. And then I was fascinated by how easily people were convinced in a good way to join, to join the, the ride. And I mean, the, 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 there was hundreds of people joining, shooting videos. And that was a flavor of the LinkedIn uh, as we know it today. And I met with you and I met with some other uh, people, the people you, you mentioned as well. And now I think uh, I, I am personally on a completely different path because of LinkedIn. And you, you, my friend, I mean, I take my hat off to you because since then you have managed to amass a following which is nearing 200,000 followers, something between 170, but we, you, you, are, you are on your way to 200K. And I think from knowing you, most likely you are, you are on your way to 1 million followers. Uh, how did this come about? Did you have a magic wand? 
you know, I think what it is is, is I, I made a decision early on. I wanted to do video because Carrie Luxem encouraged me to, and, and I realized right away that meant people could hear my voice, look in my eyes, and get to know me a little bit. And Carrie was broadcasting from her million-dollar home in her kitchen and from her from her $100,000 vehicle, and it was daunting. I didn't have a million-dollar home at the time, and I didn't have an, an expensive vehicle. At, at, and, you know, I had a brand-new car, but not as nice as hers. And it was a bit intimidating. She's been successful her whole life, you know. But I, I decided I didn't want to have people look at my videos and, and feel like I was on a different level than them. So I started doing videos with my hair messy, background noise, my dogs barking. <laughs> people started to love it. Wrinkled shirts, T-shirts. And people started to realize if I could do it, they could do it. I did it with the light behind me blinding people. I did it outside with the wind in my microphone. <laughs> And mm. people, people started to understand if I, if I was doing it using, you know, the excuses that they were using as, you know, a, a positive, not a negative, then more and more people would do it as well. And people like yourself also, I think just speaking about our experiences and our life and bringing that to the collective consciousness, I think really resonated with people. And I got really fortunate. I, I, I got somewhat deliberate and strategic early on identified a couple of the, the, the influencers on the platform that at the time were getting hundreds or thousands of likes per post. And I, I thought that was amazing. And they both had a hundred thousand or more followers. I thought that that was amazing. And I started not only engaging with them, but engaging with every post that they engaged with. So I go to their profile the last 10 posts they engaged with, I would engage with. I like their comments. I'd leave good comments. Their friends started to know me and like me and engage with me. Next thing you know, those people were on fast track to a million followers and they started engaging with me. And at that time, that's all it took. Uh, you know, if you got a like and a comment from Oleg Vishnopolsky or from Bridget Hyacinth, you're guaranteed to get a hundred likes as well. And back then they had a short list of people that, you know, they were doing that with and for. And, and just because I put myself in the right place at the right time strategically, I got on that list. So, you know, I had some early posts go viral. And from there, it was just a matter of you know, continuing to be authentic, but also keep keeping up being consistent. I don't know that I've taken one day off LinkedIn, you know, in those three years mm. or so since I started. And, you know, I always make sure I engage more than I than I expect to get engagement back. Now, you know, something like yesterday, I did a post in the morning with some hummingbirds. I didn't realize in about 20 minutes, the post had 300 likes. I said, oh, this thing's going to go crazy. So it's still going crazy. It's now got two, you know, 2000 likes, something like that. The view count's not as high as some of my posts, but it's in, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 views, whatever. Um, but a post like that, trust me, I did not go on and engage with two, 3,000 people to get that. Um, but I do believe in the law of reciprocity. So you know, I probably went on and engaged with 100 or two people because I wanted 100 or two engagements. So I think just being consistent out, you know, honestly, I, I think I still with 182,000 followers outperform most people of any follower size on the platform uh, by sheer engagement. I love any mm. post I see. I always love to give it a like, always love to give it a comment. I used to shout people out and people loved that, but I can't do it anymore because if, God forbid, if I shout out 20 people, I'm going to have a thousand people say, why wasn't I on that list and this and that you have to do it. <laughs> even, even as much as I love you and your show earlier, you said, can you make a mention on LinkedIn? I said, I can't <laughs> because I'm going to have a hundred other guests say, wait a minute, why didn't you? And, you know, it just gets to where it can be difficult to keep up. But, uh, you know, I try really hard. It's no longer 2018. I remember we were all tagging a thousand people in the comments. But let me let me go back to what you said. I think it's really important the the, the be, be authentic part. Listen, 
I am a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, okay, who really influenced me in a very positive way the first time I came across him, believe it or not, it was two, two years ago, who said, you know, don't wait for the perfect setting, Go, going back to what you said with the million dollar house and the perfect car and the perfect setting. Don't wait to create the perfect context for you to shoot. Just document, be real, be authentic, be genuine. Okay, use some tact, uh, but be yourself. Why? I think this gives you speed. The more authentic you are, uh, the more, the less you care about perfecting your equipment, perfecting your use of language, uh, right? The more speed you have in executing. What do you think about that? So I'm fond of saying, and I say often <laughs> that, that perfection is the enemy of progress, but I think I can take it a step further with you on the show. I've made the progress <laughs> and now it's fun. Gary V knows who I am as well now too. You know, he, we've had some, you know, our, our teams have been back and forth a bit and I have some, some good friends like, like our, our dear friend, uh, Rana Kudahi down in Australia. Yeah. She, she says, I'll be the next Gary V. And now my team says, no, we're going to outperform this guy. They're saying they want <laughs> me to be the next Tony Robbins, although I'm a little bit shorter. Um, but I say perfection is the enemy of progress. And I think mm. what I've done for the last two years, I've seen a lot of people, strive for perfection and so they they might post once a week and they think the post is so perfect and if it doesn't do well it breaks their heart for me yeah. i've made the progress and i think it's tangible i'm monetizing my personal brand now i'm getting leads every day for my software company that i'm the founder and chairman of i like literally i i, I don't say this lightly my dreams are coming true because of what i've done on linkedin and the only reason is i didn't strive for perfection as a matter of fact I've gone the opposite route and I've tried to have some of my content and some of my videos be as imperfect as possible. Oh, my hair looks a little too good. Let me, let me, let me expose a bald spot. <laughs> There's not enough background noise or light in the background. Let, let me screw that up a little bit. And people love it for whatever reason. Because people are, are fed up. Even the, even the dog, even the dog, you know, gives a, uh, people are fed up with the mainstream, you know, the everything being perfect and, and set up in a certain way. And that's why. But I do believe that what you said is valid. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about people who spend so much time, as you said, posting and being disappointed that they have no, no traction and they just quit? I know people, as you said, that they spend so much time crafting a perfect post, a perfect image, a perfect... Uh, video and they get zero engagement what's the secret there how how do you manage to get all this engagement so what i do and i recommend anybody do this in any and every facet in life is i a b test and what i've done i, I created a hashtag called link tips and i shared all my findings there but i a b tested everything if i had a post that did pretty well i, I came up with three three hypotheses on why and i did a post that only had one the other and the third tested those. The one that outperformed, I did that against two arbitrary measures to make sure it was truly the best. And then you start to dig in. It used to be you couldn't put an external link in the contents of your post. It makes sense. LinkedIn didn't want you to take uh, attention and eyeballs away from their platform. They're in the business of monetizing time on screen and eyeballs. Okay, makes sense. Well, I tested that and it turned out to be true. So I didn't put a single external link in my content for years, two years on the platform. If I wanted to say shedwell.com in my post, 
I will write the word Shedwell or tag the, the business page and then write out, the, you know, do a space, write out the word DOT, then a space, and then the word COM for dot com because I wouldn't do the link. I said, if I do the link, it's going to not do. So yesterday morning, I did a little test after these years. I said, you know, it's early in the morning. I'm going to do a post <laughs> that's not as much for traction's sake. You know, this one is, is a cute. I like the gift, but, you know, it was more of a let's let's make the world a better place post. It wasn't a sales post. So I tagged, I, I got some information on the hummingbird off of a website. I said, you know what? It's time. I'm going to test the external link. So I think it's worldofbirds.org. It's an obscure enough yeah. website. And I tagged them in the in the post itself. I didn't put it put the link out to people, you know, hey, please engage with this post. I didn't use any hashtags. I didn't do any of the little tricks, right? I think in 20 or 30 minutes, I had 300 likes. I said, oh, this one's going to go crazy. And then, I, but the, the strange thing is, I didn't have a single influencer, you know, and a lot of my friends, were, were, we're all influencers now, but nobody with millions of followers, no one who really changes the trajectory of a post engaged in that thing. And it was just going up by the tens of thousands in, in views for a while because uh, people really resonated with the post. But the, the point being, and the proof is that post had an external link in it and it organically and naturally went viral. So guess what that means? Now I need to go back and test some of that because my new theory is you can put an external link in a post now and it's not going to deter uh, or detract from views or engagement. But I tested everything. I spent a year and I was a weirdo. I set an alarm for two and four in the morning every day and I woke up twice in the middle of the night to check my LinkedIn. And people thought that was crazy. I said, well, I'm trying to get all this engagement and I'm, I'm getting engagement across the globe in every time zone, every continent. Imagine if you wake up at 5.30 in the morning like I do and you have 300 notifications, you can't catch up. And I learned that the hard way and I said, I don't want to start my day being 300 notifications behind. By the time I catch up, it's 5 p.m. And of course, I don't stop working at 5 p.m., but my, competit my competitors are taking a break and my customers are clocking out for the day. I mean, this is, this is not the right time to start my day because I'm trying to keep up with LinkedIn. So 2 a.m., go through all the notifications. 4 a.m., all the notifications. Then I can wake up at 5.30 in the morning, drink some coffee, spend a little time with my dogs and my wife, mm. right? And, and then have a, a relatively clean slate. And so I, I did. I took it so crazy. I was on LinkedIn on and off for 24 hours a day for about a year and a half, testing, testing, testing. When I found something that didn't work, I would make sure I didn't do it, let everybody know. You know, I like, I like to think that, that not just me, but the people like myself that were sharing everything we found, probably helps some other people get more, you know, engagement and exposure globally as well. So I had a lot of fun. And, and frankly, it's been two and a half, three years, something like that. I'm still doing it. So yeah, it's a it's a joyride. And people don't realize how much time you spent on LinkedIn to create and to sustain your community. There is no magic wand. There is no silver bullet. I've, re I, I've listened to an interview of yours saying that You've spent something like 100 hours a week the first three years. Is it correct? Something like that, I'm sure. Where, no, 50, I think 50 was on LinkedIn. So oh, 50, LinkedIn hours, yeah. 50 hours per week, which, is, which means that, as you said, LinkedIn is not just about popping in, sharing stuff, and leaving. Uh, you need to be active. The algorithm likes people who are constantly active engaging, commenting, sharing, It's a self-serving algorithm. Yeah. It, lo it loves to be loved. It loves to be loved. And it, it's, the possibilities are really endless. The other question is, I see quite a few people on LinkedIn. We had this chat before. 
who have massive followings. And my question, I will come back to you and your and schedule very soon because I'm I'm circling around the LinkedIn first. My question is, if you don't have a tangible product first, a specific product that you can use, so by leveraging LinkedIn, you can increase your chances of generating leads, therefore creating your business. If you don't have a tangible product, how easy it is to leverage a huge following to make money? Is it, does, it, does it even make sense without a specific product or service in mind? Does it make sense? Absolutely. And here's what I would say to everybody watching and everyone that's going to see some of these sound bites after the fact. Everyone watching this has a product and I can tell you what it is. We all have the same product. It's us. You are the product. And the, the capital, it's not, it's not money. Money is a byproduct. There are two resources as I see them. The first is time and the second is love. And you spend the time but when you get love, I have love around the globe. If I went, God, God help me, if I went to China, United Arab Emirates, India, if I went to the UK right now, Australia, I won't pay for a meal. I won't pay for a hotel. Now I'll do both because I'm going to go somewhere nobody knows me, right? And so, but, but really, I have fans and love all around the world with the social capital that I've built. And it's not just me. It's not unique. I've spent years spreading love, sharing love, tuning into love, putting that out into the world. And I'm, you know, thank God I have money in the bank now and I make a salary and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm part of companies that are worth a lot of money and that's great. But honestly, that doesn't mean much. And I know some miserable people who have high, much higher net worth than myself. Um, it's not about the money necessarily, but you can monetize social capital. You can monetize your life. We're all the CEO of our own life. We're all mm. our own bosses. We're our accountability partners. We're responsible we report up to ourselves. We're the board of directors and we're doing as, as individuals a terrible job as a CEO if we're running our life as a business that's not profitable. So at the end of the day, we need money to feed our dogs and our families and to pay for our mortgage and our, our car note, right? Or you know, if you're smart enough to buy used or you know, buy your car flat out, you still need to get the insurance and put the gas in. So money is necessary. Uh, but what I can tell everyone listening right now, what's even more necessary than money is love. And uh, once you get out there and you share love, you share thoughts, you share ideas, people start to get to know you. There are people hiring for EQ right now. There are people that are hiring people just because they like their name and their smile. There are people that need, need so much help right now. They're hiring anybody they've heard of. So when people spend time on a social platform, and it doesn't have to be LinkedIn, but if it's going to be LinkedIn go all in. You know, I see people that probably spend 20 minutes a day on 10 different platforms and complain that they only get 10 likes per post. If they had taken all that time and put it on any one of those platforms, they would start growing fast and de developing that, you know, that authentic fan base that you can, you can, you can mobilize and, you know, yes, you can monetize as well. How important is it to have a, a specific value proposition as a, as a profile, as a, as a LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile, do yeah. you need to have a specific value proposition? Or as you said, because you are the product, as a personality, you can direct attention into any product or service or value proposition you choose at, at whim. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I, I think we all have a USP because we all are you, right? And we're U Y O U, and we're we're you with a capital U, and and that's what we are. We you know together we are one, but individually we are one. And once people understand that concept, where you don't need to try to be too different or, or original, I can literally name it. I won't do it. We're being we're live on. You know. I can name probably 15 to more than that people that have great audiences, great engagement on LinkedIn right now that, you know, and, and I hope this doesn't sound as humble, but that have built their personal brand trying to do what I do, making videos similarly, using some of my hashtags. You know, I, I, for a while I was using a couple specific characters uh, in, in some, some things on, in my content. I've seen some of these people that are doing great now using those same characters. And, you know, they're obscure characters from the 60s, 70s, whatever it might be. They, they literally, they studied what I did. And, and it's, you know, sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So for a while I was getting messages, Corey, you need to block this person. You need to report this person. They're, this post looks like something you would have written or did they steal this from you? And you know what I said? First of all, I was so flattered. I go on, I start engaging with all of them. I, I really do. I'll give them likes, I'll, I'll comment, I'll say, this, you know, br brilliant perspective. It reminds me of something I would think. It doesn't bother me because how many mm. people now have built a brand, you know, trying to, to emulate Gary Vee, Tony Robbins, Jay Shetty, any of these people. And you know what? Frankly, my audience, and, and I, I didn't model myself after anybody, but I'm quite certain there are a hundred or more influencers that people could say, you know, Corey's just like a young version of this guy or that guy. God bless him. And maybe I saw him in the past. I didn't realize that maybe it's maybe it's completely random and it's part of the Akashic record. But there are people who have never heard of Gary Vee. I've known Gary Vee for 10 years because he and I are in the wine industry and we, were, we became in the, involved in the tech space. You only heard of him two years ago. That means for eight mm. years I could have been doing the same thing and you would have never once thought, oh, Corey's is trying to be a Gary Vee. Mm. You know? And so I think at the end of the day, everyone that's trying to be Corey Warfield out there, first of all, God bless all of them. I appreciate it. Second of all, they either don't have a gap in their teeth or a crazy, you know, Jewish Afro, or they don't have these crazy dogs that love to try to outspeak their dad in public. And right. Like there's, it, there will be differences. So it doesn't matter to me. And, you know, I think frankly, a lot of my friends that have a lot more followers and, and a lot more engagement than me feel very similarly, you know, it's, it's flattering. Listen, Corey, what you said is very interesting. And I will tell you two things. First of all, remember what we said before, authenticity gives you speed. Okay. So if you consume yourself, not you, I mean, if I consume myself trying to be Corey or trying to be Gary Vee or trying to be whoever, I have no doubt in my mind that I would be losing out extremely valuable time in the process of copying others. So this is the first point. The second point, imagine, and I've, I've, I've used this example before, imagine that I give you right now the recipe for Coca-Cola. I stole it. I stole it and, and I will send it to you. PDF, in PDF format. Ex the exact formula of Coca-Cola, okay? Then you launch your own cola product in your, in your, in, in your town. Can you become Coca-Cola? Why not? Well, you know, I, I, I teach a master class <laughs> on Think and Grow Rich and I always read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich book, but he, he tells the story very yes. well. There was a doctor that traveled around that had the recipe and he had a special magic pot and uh, he sold that recipe and the pot to, to a little doctor in a small town for a couple hundred bucks. That doctor took it and, you know, basically turned it into a brand. And now, first of all, 
Coke has so much market share that Pepsi's struggling. You know, it, we can't name, you know, I guess we could say RC or something, but, the, you know, the competition is not, uh, you know, a factor for them. But the reason that I can't do it is because there are so many people that are also trying to emulate that same product. So there's no differentiation there. And you're up against a, you know, many billion dollar behemoth. But I think more so than anything, you don't have the social proof. I, I talk a exactly. lot about social proof. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. And they have the cute Sorry. polar and they have the cute polar bears as mascots. So, <laughs> absolutely. So the the social proof, the momentum. You don't have the momentum of Coca Cola. I don't have the momentum of Gary Vee. Forget it. I can post not 30 posts a day, 300 posts a day. I've lost the train. Maybe I, maybe I'm on my own train. Maybe I'm I'm onto something myself. But forget about Kobe and Gary Vee. Forget about Kobe and Corey. And talking about Napoleon Hill. Right, because I know that you and I want to get you to the schedule chapter now, and to talk a little bit about your shift, pun intended, from uh, employee into an entrepreneur. How did that happen? What was the pivot that made you think, listen, I want to try and get out there and do develop this solution and become my own boss. What was the pivot? Do you remember? Was there a story? Was there a, a heartache? Was there a, a bad moment in your previous career that sort of pivoted you into the new realm that you are right now? No, <laughs> but no, there really is. And when I'm on LinkedIn, no one, no one there's worked in restaurants, so they take me at my word. Here on Facebook, a lot of people have worked in restaurants, so I'm going to say something um, that's either going to position me as a lunatic or a thought leader, but everyone that's watching this that's worked in restaurants is going to know that I'm right. Every day working in restaurants sucks. And it sucks for one particular reason. That's the scheduling. Ske mm. Scheduling changes every day and every week. Every week, everyone in the restaurant industry is on call. And they don't know until noon or 1 o'clock that day if they're working that day. If you have kids, you can't get child care. Let alone that most child care ends at 6 p.m., and you're working until midnight. Second of all, you don't know how to forecast how much you're working. If they say you might work five days next week and you work three, you're literally living on and making 60% of your income. And when you don't know when you're working or not, you can't have a social life. You can't have a dating life. It makes things absolutely terrible. So when you're a worker, your life sucks. When you're a manager, life sucks even worse because your bonus, right? You're paid a very small base salary and then your bonus is contingent on hitting labor percentages. You can't do that when you're, when you're haphazardly scheduling and bringing people in on call. We got lucky that now just a year and so ago, people started passing legislation in municipalities and states around the country, making that illegal. So that's how we're starting to sign some of our bigger enterprise clients, and that's what we've solved for. But five years ago when I had the idea, I realized all the data existed to end the on-call shift. The data existed if it were properly processed, and we've been using the, the, the industry-leading scheduling software for years. We liked it. We didn't love it. All of us every day said we wish it did do this or that, and it didn't do this or that. I found out how expensive it was when they took it away from us. We offered to pay for it as a staff. They wouldn't let us because they didn't want it on the balance sheet. And when I realized how expensive it was and how you know, suboptimal it was, I decided to create my own and, and one that could be, you know, differentiated by leveraging data machine learning, deep machine learning, and eventually artificial mm. intelligence, but also just what I as a worker, a shift worker, a shift worker manager, wished I would have had. I found most of our competitive products were created by tech guys, right? Or people that came from the banking sector 
they hadn't waited a table in their life. And so they didn't know things like automating a pre-shift could save time, money, and make people happy. And mm. now we're moving into some fun things. We're starting to gamify shift work to reduce churn and turnover and help people have more of a predictable and profitable life. We're touching things like training, temporary hiring. I mean, we're having so much fun with the platform now. And we see more and more adoption by bigger and bigger companies and more and more industries. And, uh, you know, it's the dream. At this point, we believe we're fast tracked to be a billion dollar company. Um, and I've got a great team as well. We've got about 20, 20 some people working with the firm that all of them are smarter than me. You know, none of them have as many followers as me on LinkedIn, but it's just because they don't, <laughs> they don't take it as seriously as I do. Um, no, we're having a lot of fun. But are you a tech guy or you hire the tech guy to manifest your idea into the product? Yeah, I brought on a, a technical co-founder initially to build out kind of the MVP. And at this point, we have a world-class CTO. We're his seventh company. Mm. His, his first six have all exited, three IPO, three public. Um, you know, and he's got a full dev team. They're all senior developers. They're amazing. We're actually getting ready to, uh, we're prepping to launch our new version of Shedwell in just a few weeks. It is next level. I love our product we've had on the market for years and been selling. However, the next version of Shedwell coming out soon is something that everyone watching this is going to be hearing about and seeing about in, in some form or fashion. I love your t-shirt, by the way. I really <laughs> love your t-shirt. <laughs> I've been seeing it for years now and you know, it, it, it sticks to the viewer because it's, part of your ecosystem and in the, in the whole atmosphere of who you are. Uh, let me ask you something else. How you bootstrap the, 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 the business, like no loans, no favors from relatives. You just went right on with your own resources and your own ambition and your hustle. Is it correct? Oh, yeah. Do you regret? No. And frankly, t today as the chairman of the board and the majority shareholder, I still only have about the same percentage as somebody might have of a company of our size that had done, you know, the more traditional fundraising and things like that. And, you know, we're now at a point where to scale, we're actually raising a multi-million dollar round. And I'll probably find out today or in the next few days, and you know, we've got some, some big interest in that already. We just launched that fundraise, you know, fairly recently. And, you know, it, It'll be great, particularly for the PR, but it's kind of, mm. it's almost sad to think that we're finally going to take a first real round of funding, um, but whatever, you know, it's, it's all part of growing up, but I wouldn't change a thing. And I recommend everybody else does because revenue needs to be your, your early social proof. And when people give you money, it's really easy to have a skewed perception. You think you're solving a problem that doesn't exist. You think people want what you're bringing to market, but they don't. And it's really difficult to spend money on product market fit. Money skews the product market fit. You need a product without money behind it and see if people not only will use it, but actually pay money for it. And that's the way you can come up with your pricing theses and, and all of that as well. And, you know, I've, I've started more companies more recently than Shedwell as well. And I help people start companies all the time. Um, you know, and this is my, my plaque from Founder Institute. I was their mentor of the year because I help people start so many startups now. And I try to tell all of them not to raise any money. I say, you know, no one wants to give you money until you don't need it anyway. So rather than wasting the emotion, the time, and, and, and you know, frankly, the resources to try to raise money, raise product, raise revenue, I always say every early stage founder, their job is to sell the dream. And you're not selling that to an investor that wants to be lazy. You're selling that to the market. You're selling that to potential co-founders that are willing to put in sweat equity just like you are. So you, <clears throat> you went from employee you developed this product, this business, and now, as you've said, 
you're generating profits, which I presume are sufficient for a comfortable life. Is it, am, am, I, am I correct? Are you happy uh, with what you do right now? Absolutely. Yeah, but between my, my salary and you know, everything else, absolutely, I'm happy. Absolutely. And what's the time span for a viewer who is considering to bootstrap or to set up their own business? The viewers who are employed, who are employees, either in the hotel, cafeteria, restaurant, or other industries, who may have an idea such as yours to solve a problem that they experienced firsthand. For you, it was the shifts, the loss of control, and the, you know, the, the negative impact o, o, on the life of a shift worker. For them, it may be something else. What sort of tie span would you say that somebody needs, and patience as well, to go through the journey that you took to arrive where you are today? Like a three, five-year plan, maybe more? Yeah, I, th I think three to five years is pretty accurate. I was about three years in when I when I first, you know, was able to start to raise bigger accounts and, and raise a little bit of just, you know, call it bridge capital because people really were excited with what we were doing. Um, and, you know, now we're closing in on five years and, you know, we're in a different world. So I do think that's a pretty accurate timeline. But one thing, if I could go back and do it all differently, the only thing I would change, I, I would delegate more and have brought more people in early. So mm -hmm. I think anyone looking to do something as long as, you know, you, you can't be a part-time entrepreneur. We've never heard of a company that was founded by a solopreneur either. So you have to find a way to at least put the 40 hours a week in, even if you're doing a side hustle, right? I think, you know, Upwork, Fiverr, places like that are a great way to supplement. I was making uh, business model canvases for entrepreneurs and students as my side hustle for about a year when mm. I was bootstrapping Shedwell. And then I started teaching my LinkedIn masterclass to teach people how to get growth like I have. Um, and that's what I used for another year to supplement the company. So, you know, even though I was working, you know, 30 to 50 hours a week, at least on schedule every, every week, you know, and, and spending the time on LinkedIn, I found a way to, to make money, not only to kind of keep my bills paid, but to keep paying for the company's progress as well. So the, the side hustle is a must for you to transition into the entre entrepreneurial realm. Hmm? I, I think so. Otherwise, you will not be able to disconnect from the employee, the nine-to-five salary-based uh, model. Yeah. What is the... How do you... How do you do with the competition in your, in your industry? Like, what's the competition like for scheduling apps and scheduling platforms? Is it fierce? How do you maintain edge, an edge, in the competition by loving them I, I i send out their retweets i congratulate them when they raise money a close competitor of ours called deputy just raised an 82 million dollar series a round wow. we, we just nabbed their the guy they tried to get as their global director of sales is now working for us um you know the the biggest the biggest leader in our space i used for years are called hot schedules their last round was a hundred million dollar debt round from the state of california bank they raised about 150 million dollars they do close to $100 million in annual revenue, big company. We have a better product, and frankly, the guy that started that company has become a friend, and he likes what we're doing and has, has talked about potentially joining our board. 
we have so many competitors and some of them have signed up for, for demos and trials of Shedwell. And, you know, obviously they all know what we're doing also, but you know, there's enough meat on the bones. There's enough pie to go around. And I truly wish them all well. That said, we've been quietly working on the best product on the market at, at the most attractive price point. And, you know, I'll feel bad when we put some of them out of business, but when we steal the large accounts from them, as we've been doing, I will be honest, it's been feeling kind of good. But in reality, I mean, this is a massive market. You're very correct. There is so much meat on the bone because, I mean, wherever you go, there are cafes, restaurants, hotels. Uh, it's, it's, the sky is the limit, really. Oh, we're now in manufacturing. We have police and fire departments Factory. using us. Univ yes, universities yes. have a use case mm. in manufacturing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it transits. The medical industry is our biggest opportunity right now. First Hospitals. responders, home health care, hospitals, mm. yes. So uh, you are correct. I mean, and, and it's part of the game. I mean, the competition is part of the game, and it what it what it it keeps the quality really high as well. So you you are kept on your toes with your team. You keep updating your software. You keep updating your platform. So it's it's a race. I wouldn't say it's a race to the bottom. It's it can be a race to the top in terms of quality, right? Which I'm excited about because. We've been competitive with our quality, but our next version, you know, I, I believe that we're going to be setting the bar globally. What's your edge? What's if you could say that schedule? Let's say the elevator pitch <laughs> with somebody who's asking you what, why schedule? So we're we're a customizable rules based scheduling platform for shift workers that solve for the labor law compliance around scheduling. So. We, we contribute substantially to companies' top and bottom line. And at the end of the day, we produce a happier, more effective workforce. So, you know, all of those put together turn into a very powerful business tool. And although I love all my competitors, I don't know that any of them can defend what I just said. And we also distill it down to smart scheduling. We've taken technology to make scheduling smarter to make life a little easier for the management as well. Let me ask you something. Talking about bootstrapping, pitching... How do you handle rejection? We all handle rejection directly or indirectly. Do you have any motto? We had this discussion with, with uh, some other uh, run as well. Uh, do you take it well? Do you take it lightly? Have you oh, found I a way? It. I love it. I love it so much. It's my favorite <laughs> thing because first of all, and Rana helped me with some of my mindset. Rana is wonderful. But the first thing that I need people to understand if they don't already is that every no is one no closer to a yes. Always. Always, always, always. And you don't know how many no's stand between you and that yes. So if you can get a no, you should be jumping up and down. That's one no that's out of the way, literally. And you're, you're one step closer to the yes, literally. Second of all, people pay attention to how you deal with the no. I've been told no before. It happened yesterday. been told no before. And you say, that's amazing. Thank you so much. God bless you. You turn around and you say, well, wait a minute. In, what about it? What about maybe? You know, and... and it becomes this great power power play and this really great kind of uh, you, you know approach that you can take. But more so than that, the no's add up to the wins and the failures add up to the successes. And every no can be a learning experience. And so through that lens, when you look at it as a blessing, you know, and people think you're crazy when you're ringing the bell at the end of the day when you had you had 600 cold calls, 580 <laughs> of them didn't answer, and 20 of them told you to go screw yourself, and you're celebrating that. My God, you never know. That 601st call could be the winner, winner, and that could be the very first thing in your next morning. Or 
you might be 10,000 no's away from that yes, in which case you just got 600 of them out of the way. It's a beautiful way to look at it. And in my opinion, it's, it changed my game both from uh, an entrepreneurial perspective and from a sales perspective. And you also become more resilient, more resilient, more mature. You, you grow a thick skin as well. I mean, when a few years ago, when I went, when I changed my career into a more freelance, when I did my first pitch and I received the no, I was like, can't be possible. I spent three hours drafting my pitch, customizing, talking to these guys, going for dinner with them. And no, yes, you have to be, as you said, you have to reframe as well. See the rejection as part of your growth as well. There is no other way to see it, I think. And you remind me of when, we, when, when you talked about Napoleon Hill and his blockbuster book, because you, you are a dreamer who are manifest, you're manifesting your dream and you're very tenacious. I've been watching your journey. You know that I've been watching your journey for years now. You've been putting hours and hours for this company and this business. And you remind me of the first story being told in that book. I'm sure you know it, but let me say it because I love saying that story. It was the story with Thomas Edison, remember? It was this guy called Edwin Barnes, a poor guy who woke up one day and he made up his mind that he wanted to go to business with Thomas Edison, not to work for Thomas Edison. He wanted to become the business partner of Thomas Edison. That was a dream. The big, audacious, hairy goal, as Jim Collins were going to say. Bloody hairy and audacious for a, a, a poor guy, poorly dressed, no money in his pocket. Whether he liked it or not, whether Edison liked it or not, what did he do? This guy, despite, despite having no money and no connection at all with Edison, he jumped on a freight train, right? And he managed to get an audience be, be, before Edison. He appeared before Edison and he told him, Mr. Edison, I want to become your partner. And there were some relatives nearby, some cousins of Edison. They were laughing. They were laughing at this guy. What are you doing? You're ridiculous. Do you know who this man is? I mean, Edison was a big shot at the time, right? And Edison was not laughing because Edison saw in the eyes of that young man a burning desire. I think there is a chapter in the book, Burning Desire, the burning desire of somebody who wants to succeed. And he hired him on the spot. He didn't make him his partner. He gave him a job which led to another job. And it took him five years to earn the trust of Edison. And I think what happened basically is that when Edison's team invented um, a voice recording device, the Ediphone was called, his team of advisors said, this is rubbish. This will never take off, right? I think it was like three years in the relationship with, with this guy, the Edwin Barnes. And this guy said, no, you're wrong. This thing can change the world, the Ediphone. And they were disagreeing, they were saying, are you listening to this guy? Who is this guy telling us? We need to, to scrap this. And Edison gave him a chance. He told him, get the Ediphone and go out there, do whatever you want. And he managed to make this um, product a success, an incredible success, and he became his partner within five years. And that's the sort of uh, the seed that led to this whole secret, you know, the secret philosophy about 
the law of attraction, but yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to hop in for a quick second because I, I teach a master, sure. I teach a master class, or as as Napoleon Hill calls it, a mastermind allegiance. I, I, I teach one that I just taught on the first chapter just a few days ago, and I pointed out something. Now, first of all, you told that story better than anyone, and it's not surprising you're a master storyteller, but that was great. But there's one thing I highlight that blew my mind because Napoleon Hill is so literal, so specific, and so intentional. That chapter says he had two obstacles. Two obstacles he had. He didn't know Edison and he didn't have enough money for the train ride. Only two. <laughs> the very exactly. And, and yeah. that means no more. That that was it. And then the very next sentence it says that he arrived in New York. Now, this is what I think a lot of people might miss when they read that. What was not specified, and you did a great job in the story. I think you did a little more diligence. The book doesn't say how he got to New York. And here's the important thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're not supposed to worry about the how. We're supposed to set forth the burning desire, like you mm. said. We're supposed to understand that this is a rules-based methodology, and we're supposed to trust the process. So it doesn't matter how he got to New York. He could have walked there. He could have flown there. He could have closed his eyes, clicked his heels. The how doesn't matter. And when we're materializing and when we're manifesting our own realities and when we're co-creating and when we're steering the ship as the captain of our lives, the how doesn't always matter. The boat doesn't care how it's getting to the other shore. It entrusts that a captain knows what he's doing, right? And so I think that that, that concept is really important to understand as well. It doesn't matter how he showed up. And Edison couldn't, couldn't give it to us. I mean, why should Edison know or care? What mattered is that he overcame the obstacle. No, he appeared before Edison. That was his major success. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Moving closer to the goal. So that's a great story. I think it's quite inspiring as well. And it's the first chapter of the book. So it, it sets you up for a, for a great ride. But there, I think there is no shortcut. But you have to have a, a burning desire and you have to be tenacious. It took you five years. Come on, it took you five years. It's not like you, and, and, and Edwin Barnes as well, it's five years. So it's the three to five years window of hustling. I think you need to put these hours in. There is no other way to do it. <laughs> this is how awesome. How difficult is it to reach? Because that's a very similar point with Edison's story. Okay, how difficult is for someone to reach the gatekeepers of the industries they wish to succeed in or penetrate through LinkedIn? Not hard, at, not hard at all. There's a guy named Jose Sill. He's the CEO of Restaurant Brands International. They own Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Horton. Mm. I reached out to him uh, by uh, engaging with some of the posts that I saw him engaging with that mentioned him, tagging him in those comments. I let him reach out to me, add me as a connection. Boom. Sent him a very nice short message to which he responded. They were coming out with the impossible whopper. I sent him some hashtags that I thought could be pleasant. I ended up seeing some in a marketing campaign. But then I sent him a long message. He and I have become, you know, not not full-on friends, but quite friendly. And, you know, he's very familiar with what we're doing at Shedwell. I think we'll get a pilot there. Um, but that happened just with a little strategic you know, don't just reach out to someone that they haven't heard of you. Do something to make sure they hear of you. Add a little bit of value so they understand mm -hmm. that this is someone that they want in your life. 
and it becomes very easy. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've met no people like Damon John from Shark Tank now, which is great, but I also just through LinkedIn know people like Jack Canfield. You mentioned The Secret. He wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. I got to meet him in person. We engage on LinkedIn, right? Things like that. So these are these are masters of their industries, you know, dominating the, the global industries that they represent. Um, and, and I've got to know all of them on LinkedIn. And, and a lot of this was, you know, well, well before I had a six figure following or anything. So it's not just, you know, one one big shot to another, even though, you know, I think most people would laugh if if they heard someone calling me a big shot yet. But, uh, you know, I'm gunning for it. It's in my sights. I have no doubt that you're on your way there. Uh, Corey, I think today we don't really need to hop on a freight train to appear before an Edison. Because as you said, even with LinkedIn, with some strategy and some tact and some uh, consistency, we can approach these people. And I had some, such success as well. My experience is that it's easy to wrap, pe wrap people off um, the wrong way on LinkedIn. So if you, if you intend to approach somebody prominent or, or somebody who means a lot to you, you should rather, as you said, uh, create the environment where such interaction will become more, more possible. How? You stalk them. You go to their posts, you add value, you engage, you become visible, you put your face before the radar. I think and as many times as I've tried that, I've seen that it can work. So the wrong way to do it is to cold message them, to send them a cold message, I want to meet you. They will not even reply, right? They have to, you have to come in their vicinity or you have to be in their vicinity. And the way to do it, once again, you go, you don't even need to be their connection. You go and you follow their activity, you add value, you spend time, you farm that, that process of interactions, and hopefully one day you can make your stint. But that's how, but it, it, it's a trap to think that you can press a button, and as you said, go for lunch with the shark tank. Forget it. I mean, this is not how things are done. Uh, and, and I've had some bitter experiences some years back. But it can happen. It's, the world is so well connected that it can happen. So let me ask you something else. If you were to choose, because you are a, right now you are an entrepreneur, you are an influencer. Allow me to use that term in the positive way. You are a marketeer. You are a communicator. You are a trainer. Maybe you can add some other nouns. If you were to choose one noun, let's say you are prohibited from using many nouns, what would you choose? Inventor or explorer, you can take it, they're interchangeable to me. I love them both. I love them both. And you know what? Stephen Fry is a popular journalist in the UK. And one, said, one day he said that we are not nouns, we are verbs. Mm. So I really like that because I also have many things on my plate. I'm a jack of many trades. I write music, I lecture, I, you know, I create content, I do marketing, I teach lawyers, I play the piano. So I like the idea that we are not nouns. So we invent, for example, we market, we provide value, we write songs, we are not musicians. We're, so I, I really like the idea of verbs as opposed to nouns.
And let me go to the final part now and ask you three personal questions, not personal in the negative sense. If you were to give any advice to your younger self, you gave us some already before with involving more people earlier on, perhaps in your journey, outsourcing more things. But if, you, if we go way back, let's say we go 20 years back to the young Corey, what single piece of advice would you give to yourself? What Hon you can say? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think it would be to listen more and to speak less. Hmm. What entrepreneur do you admire or entrepreneurs? Do you have any people that you believe are truly inspirational? And they you know, it, mm -hmm. it's going to be so un unoriginal, but I have to say Elon Musk. The same here. Absolutely. <laughs> Elon Musk. And some people, I, I, three years ago, some prominent people in the local business industry, when I told them, ah, oh, he's a, they told me, come on, this guy's a fraud. He's that. He's another. But, you know, today they're sharing his posts. <laughs> you know, a few, a few weeks ago when he launched SpaceX, he launched the NASA mission, they were all, you know, talking about Elon Musk, whereas <laughs> two years ago, that guy is a fraud. Come on, the guy is, is, is a new, not Thomas Edison, he's a new Nikola Tesla. We are lucky to have these people in our period of living, I think. Huh? I, Elon I Musk. Agree. He may be crazy, he may be on the verge, but we need, we need this kind of people. And we have two comments and questions. I will put them on the screen now before I upload the comments. Any books you recommend that you may have read recently on business, on marketing, on... You have many books on your, short, on your shelves, I know, from people on LinkedIn as well. Any really good books that you recommend? Yeah, the two I recommend to everybody and on almost any journey, but The Lean Startup by Eric Ries and, mm. uh, and Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. Those, to me, are the two must-reads. They both changed my life. I think they changed the life of almost everyone I've recommended them to. So The Lean Startup and Traction. The Lean Startup is for bootstrappers and for... Anybody. But yeah, I mean, it's, you don't need a bootstrap for the book, but it's, it's a way to start a company with, with less rather than more. And the second book is about how to gain visibility and to get traction and to draw people to you. Yeah, how to get sales, how to get you know exposure, anything you can think of from a business perspective. It's it breaks it down in very actionable, very very easy to comprehend steps. Excellent. Now we have two small comments and questions. Uh, one, okay, uh, ah, this is for, from Staffies. Hello, Staffies. He's an excellent and a former Olympian. He was a guest on my podcast. I, a few I days saw ago. that. So yeah, amazing guy. He went to the. He's a great person and athlete as well. Hi, Staffies and Nikos Kalligas. Hi, Nikos. Nikos was a manager for many years in one of the biggest coffee enterprises in in, in my country, Cyprus. And he decided he decided to quit. So he's really interested in in what you are uh, in your business and in your whole approach to the scheduling uh, solutions. And he's asking, in my experience in Cyprus, my country, uh, companies do not really use scheduling software platforms. It's just on paper. Okay. So how do you persuade a company to use such software? Is there so, a way to pitch this to them to say, guys, how do you do it? 
So, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. What I would what I would say very quickly is that we still see a lot of businesses here in the states also either using Excel or pencil and paper also. Mm. And the, the reality is, is is very stark and it's very simple. It's costing the companies money and it, it's costing their managers a, a chance at their bonuses. And so, for for companies for whom their bottom line is important, for companies that especially had a slow first and second quarter this year due to COVID, for companies that are monitoring their labor percentages on their PNL, we, we show tangible results instantly. So it's, you know, uh, we, we have a free trial period. Any company that were to use us after using pencil and paper, it's night and day difference. We have the Android and the iOS apps for the Apple. We have the web version for anyone on a computer, tablet. We also do uh, offer SMS text messaging, email notifications, anything like that to make it easy. But the the the, that pilot, that two-week pilot, I don't think anyone's ever gone through the pilot and not seen the value. I don't know if it's the case in Cyprus, but here in the States, using our software not only makes them you know, more profitable and, and a, a more educated and better communicated workforce, but it also keeps companies compliant with the labor laws. Probably no labor laws in Cyprus yet around scheduling, but I, I know Cyprus is, is always on the, the leading edge of a lot of these things also. So I imagine you'll start to see some legislation at which point using pencil and paper to schedule your workforce will become illegal. Mm. So, you know, companies, we're, we're talking, we have some high-level conversations with executives at Starbucks right now for the same reason. They paid a million-dollar fine violating these laws that we've solved mm. for. So, you know, it's really one of those things. If pencil and paper is working for someone and it's truly working and they love it and, and their employees love it and, you know, it's working I wouldn't want them to switch from something that's working well, but I think the reality is so far everyone we've shown our solution to that's using something a little more antiquated and seeing the value immediately. So maybe Nikos would like to pitch schedule for his former employers. Nikos, get in touch Please. with Corey. <laughs> we would love to talk to you. Thank you, Nikos. And a final comment again from Stathis. We've covered it. Uh, Stathis asks, how do you respond to rejection? We've covered it, but maybe you want to give a a quick snapshot of your answer again. With, excite with excitement and gratitude. I love the rejection. It, it, it opens up a, a pathway to, to an acceptance from something much better, and you can always learn from it, and at the very least, it's one no closer to it. Yes, I, I look forward to every, every bit of rejection. Uh, but I also find the further along the road you get, the less rejection you see. So I think sometimes it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's part of a journey, and I think the way you respond to it really can impact how you come out the other side. Very clear, very precise. Thanks for that, Corey. So this brings us to the end. I, I only want to ask you what the future holds for Corey, for Schedule. For, of course, you are going to the new phase now of funding, which I'm, I'm sure it will be exciting. And I wish, I, I wish, but you don't need my wish. I have no doubt that with your tenacity, your conviction, it's going to go on a positive path. Uh, what about Corey? What's so? What's so I hate I hate to say this, but so I, I've got a thinking grow rich mastermind that I'm a few minutes late for, and the worst thing about it is I'm going to leave you with the the you're going to want me to go into detail, and I don't have time. So this just means you have to have me on next time. Uh, but I, I have an idea of an invention that I, I've I've come up with. I've done some very preliminary engineering, and it, it's it's intended to take us as a as a humanity to the bottom of the ocean, and then potentially the bottom of Antarctica as well. Uh, we've never been to the bottom of the ocean. There, you know, the the further down we go, the more incredible things we see. You know, electric neon creatures full of chemicals that can help regrow brain cells. We find all kinds of things. All the airplane and boat wrecks down there, former civilizations. But 
just so much. And, and I've got some ideas on ways that we can get down there very safely, very easily, and very you know, uh, eco-friendly. Um, so I, I've mentioned this to some NASA, ex-NASA, and SpaceX employees and engineers. It's blown their mind as well. They're on board with it. And you know, it's a costly endeavor. So we'll, we'll sell Shedwell first. And that's, that's what's next. And unfortunately, we're going to have to do a, a part two for me to do a deeper dive on that one. We, Literally. Great. With great, with great pleasure. So thank you so much, Corey, for being on this show. I've really enjoyed our chat. We will have a next one for sure down the, down the line. Thank you to our viewers who have watched and who will watch the pre-recorded version of the various audio platforms as well. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll be seeing you on LinkedIn and not only. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank bye. you so much. Thanks for watching. Ciao. Thanks for having me. Ciao. Bye. 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 Save a prayer. Those who care, I keep the faith, but no one will dare to hold my hand until the end. When all the pieces fall into place, my body is weak, the mind is tired, but there's a fire that heals deep inside. I close my eyes and stretch my soul to gather up the nerve to care.